This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Welcome to Talking Flutes. I'm so excited today to be chatting to Susan Milan. Lovely to see you and hear you. Hello, Sue. Hello, Claire. It's wonderful to be able to chat to you, but before we get chatting, I think it's very important that I mention a few of your wonderful achievements, of which there are so many. So, here we go. You were the first female solo superstar flute player in a field dominated by men. And your career is one of firsts. First female principal flautist of both the London Symphony Orchestra and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. First woman to serve as professor of flute at the Royal College of Music. First woman to chair the British Flute Society. You've made dozens of recordings, had many pieces written for you. You've published editions of rare pieces, books of studies, cadenzas. In 2019, uh, you received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Flute Association of America. And in your spare time, you're professor and fellow at the Royal College of Music, professor at the Royal Northern College of Music, professor at Trinity Laban Conservatory. Wow. So my list could go on and on. I'm sorry I've missed out an awful lot of other things, Sue. Where do you find the time for everything? <laughs> well, you make me feel very tired just saying all of that. I just want to correct you on one small detail, though. Um, I was never principal flute at the London Symphony Orchestra. I did play principal flute as guest principal in the London Symphony, and I believe I was the first woman to do that, the first woman actually to play in the London Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, I think that's true. Certainly the first woman uh, principal of the Royal Phil, which is fantastic. Uh, The rest of it, I think, is, yeah, pretty much right. (laughs) Thank you for all of that. It's incredible. Out of all those achievements, what do you think you're most proud about? It's a long career, you know. I mean, I've been playing the flute. I mean, I'm 73 now. I'm sure everybody knows that, so I'm not telling anyone anything they don't know. And I'm not really ashamed of it. It's funny how women hate to tell their age, don't they? But mine's, you know, mine's published in the Daily Telegraph every year, so I can't, I can't, I can't escape. Um, anyway, um, and so I've been playing the flute for, oh, uh, over 60 years. And, and sometimes I forget all the many, many aspects and things that I've, that I've done. Um, I suppose becoming principal through the Royal Phil was an amazing high spot in my life. I mean, it was just an incredible experience. And the eight years or so that I stayed in the Royal Phil were the happiest years of my professional life and certainly very challenging. I mean, when I joined the Royal Phil, I hadn't played any symphonic repertoire apart from Brahms for when I was in the Royal College of Music as a student and, and in the London School Symphony Orchestra because I was in the London School Symphony Orchestra from the age of 12. So, um, yes, so I was learning the repertoire as I went along and it was a very challenging and exhilarating and exciting time. I mean, it had a, a, few, a few blips uh, or a few funny things kind of happened, but uh, on the whole, it was my happiest time, I think. Certainly playing in an orchestra and being able to play um, 
symphonies like Brahms, Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, all those big works, Bruckner, Mahler, um, Strauss, tone poems, was absolutely incredibly exciting. Um, and I think it, it's hard for students to um, kind of to get that feeling until they get into the profession. We as flute players don't have much repertoire that compares to Brahms, Tchaikovsky, uh, and all those big works. So to be in the, in the middle of it in an orchestra is, is fantastic. Anyway, so I suppose, yes, when I look back, I look back with great happiness on my time with the Royal Field. Uh, when I left the Royal Field, I, I then, um, and while I was in the Royal Field, I was playing guest principal with other symphony orchestras. So my, my, my orchestral career didn't stop, but I didn't take a full-time job after that, a permanent job, but I was always playing in symphony orchestras as guest principal for many, many years. Um, so, so yes, that was a happy time. Well, wonderful. Now, can I take you back to your early years again then, because you were a trailblazer for women in music and flute players. And when you graduated, which I think was 1967. 68. What, 68. Yeah, what, yeah. So what did the <clears throat> landscape look like then? Well, many people ask me that, you know, and I, I don't think it was that much different from today in the sense that as flute players, there are never that many jobs available. You know, there are only two or three flutes in a symphony orchestra, only one or two flutes in a chamber orchestra, and not so many of those really in the world. And many of them don't take women even now, um, not in Britain so much, but certainly abroad, that there's still a, a huge, um, resistance to having women principal players in certain sections. I have to say, I did some research on it recently and in actual fact, I mean, I'm slightly contradicting myself here, but about 50% of the principal flutes around the world are actually women. And you know, there are more principal piccolos, women principal piccolo players than men around the world. Um, I researched it to give a PowerPoint presentation on women in music, and it was really, really fascinating. But on the whole, the very famous orchestras, you know, the Vienna Phil, the Berlin Phil, the Czech Phil, huge resistance, very few women on, in any, on any instrument. Anyway, so, but in this country, I mean, when I, when I started out, and professionally, that is, um, there, there weren't many women uh, players in orchestras. There weren't many jobs, but there also weren't many women either in any, on any instrument. The, the LSO had no women, the LPO had no women, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra had no women. So the three, made, three of the four major London orchestras weren't taking women. It's a terrible thing, isn't it, to say that now. It's, it's hard to even imagine it. Um, but that was the case. And the Philharmonia traditionally had, had women for, for, for decades. And the, all the BBC orchestras, of course, took women. And all the regional orchestras, the opera orchestras, but the three, the London orchestras were the exception, really. So yes, so it was it, it was difficult, and it's a male-dominated profession. I mean, I started out in the chamber orchestra in the south of England, or uh, you know, I studied with Geoffrey for my postgraduate year. Wonderful teacher, wonderful man. And um, at the end of that year, I I hadn't the faintest idea what I was doing. You know, I think I think uh, many people do ask me um, if I if I had planned to play in orchestras, if I had an ambition to play in orchestras. You know, frankly, I wasn't, I, I wouldn't have considered myself to be ambitious. I was kind of a, 
I was, uh, I was kind of a little boat bobbing on a stormy sea, you know, and I just grasped the helm and went where it took me. Uh, my family background, we were, they weren't musicians at all. They had no understanding whatsoever of classical music. And the advice I had was only from my teachers, really, and maybe some friends, but mainly, mainly teachers. And Geoffrey, uh, at the end of my postgraduate year, uh, he said to me, um, Susan, what are you going to do? when you leave college? And I said, I have no idea, Mr. Gilbert. You know, Mr. Gilbert, sir, you know, very formal in those days. And, um, <laughs> and he said, you're going to get a job. And I said, yes, Mr. Gilbert. <laughs> and he said, there's a second flute job going in the Bournemouth Sinfonietta, go and audition. And I said, yes, Mr. Gilbert. And so I went, I auditioned and I got the job. And quite honestly, if he hadn't steered me in that direction, I probably wouldn't have known what to do. I was absolutely clueless. And so I got that second flute job. And then shortly after the principal flute left, and then I applied for the principal job. And there were two women, myself, and I forget the name of the other wonderful lady, a very good player. And there were two, two of us who got trials. We had trials. So I had my three-month trial as principal flute. And this is interesting because this was my first experience of prejudice against women. I really think before then, I was rather innocent. I had no concept of how it could be possible that I might not get a job because I was a woman. It hadn't, frankly, it hadn't occurred to me. And uh, <laughs> I, I had my three months trial and then I was given another month's trial. And I went to the leader and I said to him, why am I getting another month's trial? And he said, because I don't want a woman principal flute in the orchestra. Oh, wow. I know, it's shocking, isn't it? Shocking. Um, and I was just uh, amazed, open-mouthed about it. So I, I, I had my other month's trial, and then the principal conductor came and gave me the job. And that was my first experience, and it, it was very, very disturbing. I stayed there for three and a half years. I had a wonderful time. I played a lot of fabulous repertoire and toured, I played concertos with the orchestra, it was a great experience, I made wonderful friends. But there was, there were just one or two, probably manage, management, who, who were still a little frosty towards me because I was a woman principal in the orchestra. And then I went to London, because so I was a little bit, um, I desperately wanted to play in the symphony orchestra by then, I wanted to play the big repertoire, so, uh, and have a different type of life. And I am a Londoner. I was born in London. I was born in Kentish Town. So I, I longed to be back in my, in my hometown. And uh, so I went back to London with nothing. I, I didn't have a job to go to. I just, I left the orchestra and I took, I took a flyer. I, mean, I took a risk. I went back and I was freelancing really quite a lot. I think once you, it's interesting to, uh, to explain to your young students that it's really important to get on that ladder because once you have a job in an orchestra, it doesn't matter whether it's second flute or first flute, but preferably first flute, of course, if you, if you have that ambition. Once you have a first flute job, people recognise you as a first flute. They never ask you to play second flute. They always ask you to play first flute. So from that moment that I had a first flute job, fortunately for me, I had my, I had my sort of label and I was invited to play in the Menuhin Orchestra and the ECO and the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields and uh, Depping, just Depping, just as a guest. And so I did a lot of playing as a freelance, but I was always looking out for the possibility of an orchestral position. Now, 
the Philharmonia came up. Pat Linden, do you remember Pat Linden? I do very uh, well. A wonderful woman, a lovely, lovely flute player. And she, she was uh, considerably older than me and more experienced. And she, she got that job, quite rightly so. And then I applied for the, um, the BBC Northern, it was in those days. It's now called the BBC Philharmonic, I think. Philharmonic. Yes. And that was quite, um, I mean, without in any way criticising them, but it was quite old school. And I knew that I was not going to be welcomed there. There were no women principals in the wind section. Um, and, and so that didn't work out. And then uh, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra job came up. Oh, the LSO came up, London Symphony Orchestra. And of course, that was a ridiculous idea because the LSO was the last bastion of, uh, of chauvinism, really, in those days. And I, I did audition. I think, I think I was given the whole of Daphne and Chloe as a sight reading test. And fortunately for me, I had played it in the, London, in the London School Symphony Orchestra, so I played it okay. And I think I gave a good audition, and I, I had a feeling that, you know, I really, it would have been, I had a chance of getting that job, but they weren't taking any women, there was no way. So, but it was good experience. Um, you know, it's good, it's good in a way to experience uh, disappointments, because it's, you're going to have them, you, you, can't, you can't avoid rejection. You cannot avoid it. Not everyone's going to like your playing for a start, even if it's great. Not everyone's going to like it. So anyway, that didn't work out. And then the Royal Phil, and so I, 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 I met with the wind players of the Royal Phil, and they gave me an audition as such. Um, I think the first piece I played with them was Midsummer Night's Dream, Scherzo, uh, Scheherazade, which actually I'd never played before, but I learned it before I went and uh, a Barnum Concerto, I don't remember which one. And it was in Hemel Hempstead. And after that, basically, I, I, I was on trial. And then, fortunately for me, um, the wind section were liberated from prejudice against women. Uh, the, 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 my main, the main influence there was Derek Wickens, who was the principal oboe. And he really liked my playing. And I think he was instrumental in persuading them that a woman principal would be okay. <laughs> so I got, I actually was offered that job. But funnily enough, history kind of repeated itself because I had a three month trial. And at the end of the three month trial, they offered me another month's trial. And I thought, here we go. So I, I said, why are you offering me another month's trial? <laughs> and they said, oh, we have to wait for Rudolf Kemper, the principal conductor to come. And I thought, okay, okay. That's how it is. And he did. And we were playing Brookner Six. And after Brookner Six, has a big flute solo, you know, Brookner Six, um, I was offered the job. And that was absolutely wonderful. Sounds like you had to be very brave. Because you were brave, first of all, to go down to Bournemouth. You were very brave to leave it without another position. And then you managed to find freelance work in, as we said, in a world that, that didn't have many female players and you persevered and then you got this wonderful job. It's fantastic. Yes, I suppose so. But, uh, you know, I do think I, I, do think I just bobbed along. I'm, I'm quite good at going with the flow. I think I, I, I mean, it, it, realistically, I, I think I had a lot of confidence. Mm. I mean, I'd been playing in orchestra since I was 12 at the London School Symphony Orchestra with marvellous experience. Mm. And I think all students who can should play in a youth orchestra or an amateur orchestra, any orchestra, from a very as early an age as they possibly can. And my son uh, Christopher plays the cello and he was in a couple of youth orchestras earlier on. 
it, it, it's just you can you can watch them sort of blossoming and they they gain confidence because they're surrounded by people of their own age and they have plenty of time to work on the repertoire um, and they're, they're, they're performing major works. I performed Daphnis and Chloe with the London School Symphony Orchestra. I mean, how amazing is that? And we toured Germany and I played a, a concerto with them. I toured Germany. I played the Quantsflute concerto in G at the Bonn Beethoven Halle when I was 15. Mm-hmm. And I played the Flute and Harp concerto with the London Symphony Orchestra when I was 15, all because of the London School Symphony Orchestra. So I think if you've done that, there's a kind of, it's not that you feel sort of um, arrogant. I don't think I was ever really arrogant. I think I was confident because I, it was just an assumption that I was going to carry on doing those kind of things. It was a, an innocent sort of assumption. But also you'd had such good experience, so it built up a, a, a level of, of confidence, which yes. is... I think is difficult to to get the certainly in these days of of, of pandemic, very very difficult. Oh, oh. My last podcast, too, I did a Mother's Day special. Now, how did you manage to juggle, sort of your work work and home with children? I've just I've, I've just chatted on the last podcast how difficult it was. How did you manage? <laughs> Oh, yes. Well, I was, I was quite lucky, really, because um, my first husband uh, was who's the father of my two sons. Uh, he, uh, he had two children from his first marriage, so he was used to having help in the home. I mean, he was quite aristocratic, my first husband, and he was, he, he was perfectly happy to have some help living in. So I had, um, after James was born... Uh, I'll tell you the story of James, actually, because not only was I the first woman member of the Royal Phil, I was the first pregnant woman, woman <laughs> of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Well, it, it was obviously a unique experience. Uh, and, um, and so when, when I had James, we immediately had um, a qualified nanny. And then, uh, but when James was one, I left the orchestra. I mean, I think I would not... I regret leaving the orchestra, I want to tell you that, and, and uh, I haven't say, ever said that to anybody, but I so regret leaving orchestral life. But at that time, there didn't seem a great deal of choice, because I just loved having my babies, I loved my sons, and I didn't want to be away from them, but travelling around the world. Not because of them, I think they would have been well cared for, but because I needed to be with them. So it, when they were, uh, when James was one, I left the Royal Phil and my husband and I moved to Holland at that time. And fortunately, I had an agent who found another agent for me in Holland. And I, I actually continued to do quite a lot of playing. At first, it was a bit grim because for the first, I think, six months, I didn't do any playing. I, I got terribly, terribly depressed. I think people don't realise how depressed you get when you don't play. It's kind of you know, post-concert depression. But then I had this agent and I was also invited to be guest principal of the Netherlands Chamber Orchestra. So I was still playing in orchestra. I, was, I had my ensembles. I was doing some tours with various groups. And, and, so, and I had also had my new contract with Shandos. So that was really great. But during all of that time, getting back to your question, because I'm diversing again, uh, whatever it's called, (laughs) um, 
uh, digressing, that's what I'm looking for, I'm digressing. Um, yeah, to get back to your question, uh, I always had help. On the other hand, I always thought the help was for me rather than they looked after me rather than my children, you know, because I spent as much time as I could uh, with my children. I had my second child while we were living in Holland. We had, we had Christopher in England, but we were at the time living in Holland. And, um, and I would have au pairs once they got really uh, more secure and went to school. I had au pairs and I had a, a woman of some sort, an au pair, a nanny or mother's help, living in my house until my second son was 18. My first son was 20. And this was absolutely wonderful. Otherwise, it was a house full of boys, you know, my husband. <laughs> and, uh, it was very nice to have another woman around and someone who could take over some of the some of the chores, because the most time-consuming thing really is not so much the children. Of course, when they're very young, it's very demanding because you're up all night and, and all that, but uh, it's, it's running the house. I mean, it's doing all the cooking, the shopping, you know, oh, et cetera, et cetera, cleaning. So if you have someone who takes that off your hands, that's a lot of time that you gain, huge amount of time. And without that help, I couldn't have done what I've done. There's no question about it. I mean, there, I'm, I'm sure there are other ways. I know many couples, uh, friends of mine who, who are musicians who have childminders and nurseries and uh, all that. And I, there are other ways, but I think my advice to any, any young girl who wants to have a career and a continuous career, you know, not take years out. You can't take years out of music. You never get back in. Yeah. You just can't. So you have to keep, you have to keep somehow your profile up and or, or make sure people know you're still there and still playing. And so my advice to any young woman who wants to do that, get help. You have to get help, don't hesitate. It, I mean, what we do as women, realistically, is we work to pay for the help that allows us to work. And it really is a daft, a totally daft situation but I can't imagine my life without playing my flute, without music in my life. And so for me, it was worth working to pay someone so that I could work. I can certainly relate to that, Sue. I, I had the, the same problems and we had, um, we had my, I was very lucky, my parents were close by, so they had a lot of the, uh, did a lot of the, of the help. And then when yeah. the children were old enough, we also went through au pairs, not always successful but essentially, <laughs> essentially, so it all works out. Anyway, that's, that's, thank you for telling us all that. That's, that's, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to hear that you had all the same problems that, I, that certainly that I had in terms of juggling and might be help to anyone else think about having children. Let's go back again a little bit and talk about which flute players inspired you and maybe who inspires you now. Who inspired me? Well, uh, gosh, I mean, of course, when I was younger, I suppose my teachers inspired me. I have a, an enormous collection of LPs, you know, um, which I listened to avidly when I was younger, not just to flute players. And, and this is a very important thing to pass on, I think, to one's students, that you, you mustn't listen to just flute players. You must listen to great musicians, great violinists and pianists. Um, but um, I listened to, uh, of course, Marcel Moyes was an enormous inspiration because, as you know, I attended his masterclass course when I was 18. Um, and that, that was a huge turning point in my life. It was that, that experience which 
directed me towards studying with Geoffrey Gilbert for a year. And studying with Geoffrey changed my entire life and my career. I don't think I would have had the technique I have or had then in order to get into orchestras if I hadn't studied with Geoffrey. I had lots of other things. John Francis was my first, my main teacher from a very early age. I don't know if you know about history, but if you want, want me to tell it, I can, um, if we have time. But, um, and John was a lovely man. He was a great mentor. And, and I studied with him for four years. Actually, one year when I was 11, I studied with him, and then four years at senior college and learned so much from him. He was a wonderful musician. And with Jeffrey, I, I mean, he just revolutionized my technique and so many aspects of my technique and my approach to flute playing. And so I was fortunate to have both of them. And, uh, but I wouldn't have gone to Jeffrey if I hadn't gone to Marcel Moyes, because going to Marcel Moyes uh, was a wake-up call that I realized there were many things I, I couldn't do. Um, and so uh, that, that was a, a great turning point. Other, other flute players that I listened to, of course I listened to Marcel Moyes, all those early recordings, beautiful sound, wonderful phrasing. Um, and uh, Jean-Pierre Rampal, I'm a great fan of Jean-Pierre Rampal. Uh, many students now don't even know who he is. It's frightening, isn't it? This generation gap. I say, who is Jean-Pierre Rampal? And they don't know. And one of the greatest flute players has ever been, um, king of the flute, he was called at the time, played on the gold flute had this beautiful, beautiful French sound, lovely, mellifluous playing, fantastic articulation. And I used to listen to him. Aurel Nicolet, great musician, wonderful person, great teacher. Um, Jimmy Galway, of course, uh, he used to walk into my class, you know, every now and then, because he started with John Francis. Um, and, and we would have to play duets. That was quite a frightening experience. <laughs> Later on... Um, uh, later on, and now, in fact, now, if I want to cheer myself up, do you know what I listen to? John Amadio. John Amadio. John, um, early flute recordings. Some of those early flute recordings are absolutely astonishing. And I just, I just sit and laugh, and, and it, it cheers me up tremendously and inspires me enormously. I, I'm not wholly up to date with some of the, uh, the current uh, top flute players. Of course, I, I've heard Pahu and some of his very wonderful recordings. On the whole, I don't, you know, I've never really listened to much flute playing, I have to confess. Um, mainly, I've listened to singers, and I suppose I was inspired to do that also by Marcel Moyes, whose tone development through interpretation. And I love opera, uh, and, and so I listen, and I have a, quite a big collection of leader and um, operatic arias. And I find those immensely, immensely uh, inspiring. Um, and I must say that some of my future students who play fabulously lift my spirits, all of those things. Moving on then to your students, You've, you're teaching at all these places. How are you managing at the moment? <laughs> well, it's, it's quite comfortable really, isn't it? Sitting, sitting in your room in front of Zoom, except Zoom is, is just inadequate. Uh, um, and I don't like it. I think in some respects, one learns a few things from, from Zoom, but quite honestly, I, I don't think I learned a great deal from uh, teaching on Zoom. I think, I think I've expanded some of my technical skills on the computer. I've become more patient. Yeah. I've learned to pace explanations and be more articulate and precise because we rely now so much on talking and one of the difficult things with Zoom is to stop talking and actually hear someone play, you know. You spend so much time talking. Um, 
And I know, I do know now what I look like when I'm teaching, and that's quite sobering. But I think, I think students can be made much more aware of their visual presentation uh, because they see themselves on the screen, and that's quite handy when you want to uh, make them aware of their hand positions or physiology to some degree. Um, screen sharing is very useful. Um, I've enjoyed that because, especially with group teaching, because you can put the music up on the screen for everyone to see in a class, and that's really helpful. Um, but will I continue to use any of these skills? Yes, maybe some of them, perhaps. I'll certainly be more patient and uh, maybe I'll smile a bit more when I'm teaching as well. <laughs> now you were telling me that you've, you have made the first proper visit back to the college. Yes, I did, yesterday. Um, yes, as I was saying, it was, it was just, just like a glass of champagne. It was just wonderful to be able to hear my students sound properly again and to be able to interact naturally without having to wait for someone to turn their mute on or off or for the transmission to, to get through. Uh, you know, this source teaching is so delicate in a way, isn't it? It's so subtle, it's so personal. Uh, and, and all those things, that delicacy, subtleness, subtlety, um, and the personal side of things, it, it kind of disappears on Zoom. It's become, it, it's so, I wouldn't say it's clinical, but it's really hard to be spontaneous and personal. Delighted, and I'm going into Trinity on Friday to see three of my students, um, and that will be really wonderful. And of course, you can also get them together. Hopefully, I mean, I don't know what the rules are precisely, but hopefully, we'll be able to get them together to have a class, which I usually do every week with my students, a technical class, and that's wonderful because then they can hear each other and learn from each other and be friends. And this is very important. So, I mean, it's, it's been such a difficult year and, and you know, a lot of, of, of player, young players are feeling very sort of lost and, and, and isolated. So, and they've not been able to get to your masterclasses. Now, auditions are about eight months away, I think. What advice would you give to maybe any aspiring flutists today who are going to be auditioning in terms of October, November, December? With my students, really a year out, but it's a year... It has been a year, hopefully, of opportunity to find more time to consolidate your techniques and to broaden your repertoire. And I gave my students a practice timetable at the beginning of the pandemic lockdowns, which seemed to help a lot. And many of them have, have really taken that on board and done very well. The problem, the, the problem is that without incentive, um, of playing and without being able to play with other people in ensembles and orchestras, they, they get very depressed. And so, and, and that is hard, that's hard. And um, we're all getting depressed with this pandemic, everybody. I, do, I think very few people are not suffering. But, you know, I think they will have learned, they will have developed that kind of inner strength that you have to have if you want to compete in the profession. They will have found their inner strength. They may not see it now, but I've watched my students and seen how they've handled it and how they've become stronger and, you know, been, been more self-disciplined and more self-assessing has gone on. And that's interesting. It happens on Zoom in particular because they see themselves, as I said, and some of them had to make recordings, video recordings, 
to sing to themselves, which is great, because we all know when you first hear yourself on a recording, you think it sounds absolutely horrible, and then you go back and you have another go, uh, and then you learn, you learn, the, you know, you learn the reality of your own playing and of what it's like to record and to try to try to be perfect, which of course none of us can be perfect. So all those things they've learnt, which is great. They've learnt new skills, but more than anything, they've probably got to know themselves better and to develop that inner strength that, that I was talking about. When it comes to auditions, um, if they're going to be, if they're going to be uh, recorded auditions, I think that's incredibly difficult for them. As I say, it's like my, my going into college yesterday and seeing my students. I mean, that was a breath of fresh air. And, and it's, it's quite different when you're playing to somebody. It's quite different. And I found, I, recently, uh, one of my students made a, a recording for a competition. And I was on Zoom with her and, I, and she said, oh, I haven't made a very good recording. It's not, you know, I can't do it. It's, it's so diff too difficult and I'm not happy. And I said, okay, let's do it now. And so I was sitting, watching her do it. And she, she made a fantastic recording. And at the end of it, she said, I don't know how I did that, but it was so much easier when I was playing to somebody. And so if you can, if you're making an audition recording, See if you can get somebody just to sit at the other side of the video um, or even just sit in the room so that you do get some sense of performing to somebody. That's really, really helpful. If you're going in live, well, I hope you are. I hope they can do live auditions. I don't know. I haven't, haven't, I'm not up to date with what they're about to do. Usually auditions are in December. So hopefully they'll have live auditions. Um, and I, anyone who's going in for those auditions that's listening now, I, I wish you all the luck in the world. It's a, it's a very high standard that's required. You know, it's not easy to get into any of the conservatories. And you do have to play very, very well. Be prepared. You won't get in on potential. Some students have said, oh, won't they see that I've got potential? And I said, no, I'm sorry, they won't. You know, you'll only get in on the level you play on that day. It's just like any orchestral audition. No one's going to give you a job in an orchestra because they think you have potential you've got to be already good enough. What three things would you look for if you had to narrow it down to three in an audition? Well, I would look for an already well-developed technique. If you can play the 4A fantasy at the crotchet equals 144, then you can play. And in the college, that's been set since the year dot, since I, I work, I, I've taught in the Royal College of Music for about 36 years. And it's always been the Foray Fantasy. They never changed it. They changed it one year to the Gobert Nocturne and Allegro Scherzando, um, which I suggested. And then the following year, they, 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 they changed it back to the Foray Fantasy. So there you are. Um, and if you play at half speed, they won't be impressed. So you do have to have the kind of technique where you can tongue at a property was 144 and move your fingers fast enough. I, I, would look, I look for a beautiful sound and, and musical phrasing, musical intelligence, imagination. You know, as I said, you know, just talent and potential won't get you in. You have to already be a certain level. It's not grade eight. It's way above grade eight. Grade eight was, used to be the level you had to have to just take an audition. And the grade eight level now, as it now stands, is not high enough to get into the Royal College of Music. So um, I'm just saying it, I hope I'm not upsetting anybody saying that, but you have to know what you're up against because you, you're, the young people are deciding on their future with this audition and with all their applications to universities. You know, if you're not that level, 
if you really can, if you can't play the Fauré Fantasy or whatever pieces you've chosen well enough, you, it's not fair to let you go through all of that ordeal. So ask yourself and your teacher what they think about that. There are so many other paths you can take, even into the music profession. There are many students come out of Cambridge and great conductors have come out of Cambridge and gone into the music profession. You can go to university and, and, do, a, and do a postgraduate year at one of the music colleges. You know, it doesn't have to be a music conservatory. There are so few places for the flute, so few, and so many applicants. So um, think through it really carefully and practice a lot. Yeah, it's important to, for, for students to be realistic about what their chances are. And it's an expensive business too, you know, to apply, but the travel and, you know, and yeah. the work involved. And if you have no chance, it's better to know beforehand, I think. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, and, and that's where, you know, that's where your teachers come into it um, to, to give you advice, to give you good advice. Uh, I know it can be very disappointing if it's in your heart you want to play music and be a musician. It's a, a wonderful profession and it's, it's an exciting profession. We all, we all get totally hooked on, on performing um, and it's very exhilarating and wonderful to do. But if, if it's not for you, if you, if you, if you for example, if you, if you started late, if you learnt the flute late, I started at nine and that's okay. It was a little bit late maybe. Um, some of the great, really great, truly great musicians start at three. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to get a technique. And I, I was very lucky, as I say, because I, I, I did have a very, very good training from, the, from a very early age. I was, I was trained like an athlete. I mean, I, I had very good teachers from the age of 11 or 10 even. But if, you know, if you hadn't been trained like that, it's really hard to catch up. And then if you set your heart on being a musician and you go for all of these auditions and you don't get a place anywhere, you have to think about what you're going to do. So it's very important to apply for uh, universities and some of the universities have fantastic music uh, uh, facilities. Uh, um, and so, yeah, you have to think through all those things and get good advice. That's, that's, that's the thing. So that's great advice from you, Sue. Thank you. So um, have you made any plans for this year yet, besides going in to do some teaching? Have you got any playing plans or are you holding back? Well, I think with this lockdown, I've, I've almost gone into a catatonic state, but um, <laughs> I mean, so many concerts were cancelled when the, when, the, when the pandemic started. Um, I've had to cancel my festival. You know, I run a music festival, the British Isles Music Festival, which is for all instruments, not just the flute. Um, uh, and it's fabulous, lots of chamber music and lots of concerts. And I've had to cancel it this year as well as last year, which is really, really upsetting. Uh, it's a lot of work, but it's just one of the most wonderful things. And um, I usually go to America in April and I had to cancel it last year. I won't be going this year, I don't think, because the travel, the travel corridors won't be open. So I usually go over there and give six concerts or so and some classes and lectures and things. My chamber music ensemble, is about to become a resident ensemble here in Hazelmere, at a church in Hazelmere. And I'm planning to have some workshops for players and a competition and some charity concerts and some evening concerts with my various groups. Um, and that's a project which is ongoing. Uh, I'm on the jury of the Kulau competition, which takes place at the end of October. 
And that'll be fun because it's a very nice competition and lots and lots of flute players from all over the world come. So there are a few things in there. Um, performances are difficult. I mean, the orchestras have hardly played uh, in the last year. Music clubs are just are closed down because they, you can't have audiences. So I think it's going to be, take a bit of time for everything, for the wheels to go, start going round again. And to, you know, to get music club concerts, which I usually have music club concerts with my ensembles, but everything's been closed down. So, yes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm gradually gearing myself up and uh, trying to um, get back to playing more. Horrendous for musicians, absolutely horrendous. Um, certainly not enough support, not enough financial support. And um, probably there are hundreds of musicians out there who are extremely down and depressed because, as I said before, uh, not playing is an extremely distressing thing for most musicians mm. if you don't play. So it's, uh, yeah, it's really hard, it's bleak. Yeah, well, we have to try and try and keep as positive as we can and hope that um, we all get our vaccine by the middle of this year and we can start to live a, a more normal life. I, I think so. Uh, I mean, we, we, there's so many things we don't know at the moment about this, uh, this virus. Um, but hopefully, uh, I mean, I'm optimistic. You know, I'm, I'm a born optimist, really. Uh, positivity is my middle name and I think you know I think it, we will get through it and eventually we will pick up again and um, hopefully we musicians will get back into professional life um, and be happy again. I think a, lo a lot of people will have already decided to go on a different path because of the, the difficulties and the fact there is no there's no work so on that sort of thought if, if you hadn't been a musician what do you think you'd have been doing? Gosh, I've no idea. I mean, my my parents, as I said, were not musicians. When I when I when I received my scholarship to the Royal College of Music, I was sixteen, so I was very young. My father went and went to John Francis and said, "Don't you think she should take up shorthand typing?" And John said, "No, Mr. Milan, she just got a scholarship at the age of sixteen. I think she'll be okay." But I think you know. <laughs> If I hadn't had music in my life, my father's plan for me was to be a, um, a secretary like my mother. My mother became a secretary and my father worked in, the, um, uh, in London. They were both civil servants eventually. They were working class people in my family and uh, they worked extremely hard and, and did very well for themselves. But um, they had no idea about classical music. I, I, I think if I'd had a choice, if I had finished my education, which I didn't, of course, I left school at 16. But if I had uh, not had music in my life and I had continued my education and I'd been good enough at these things, I'd love to have gone into medicine, actually, I must say, or uh, perhaps English, English literature. Mm. I'm very fond of poetry. I read a lot of poetry. I write poetry and I read a lot of books. I have read a lot of books. So maybe somewhere in that field, maybe I'd have become an English teacher or something. Will we see them in a book, your poems? I doubt it. I doubt it. I think it's very unlikely. I, I have got them in two books, as a matter of fact, the ones that I have read. I haven't written poetry for a long time now, um, just occasionally, but not, not sort of seriously. I was, at one stage, I fancied myself as a, a rather good amateur poet, but I'm probably absolutely rubbish, you know. Most people who write poetry are not all that good. But you write it, you don't write it to be good, you know. You write poetry to to kind of express things in a way that you can't in any other way. Poetry is so, um, it's so immediate and it's kind of praised, isn't it? It's kind of like, how can I put it? It's
it's it's undiluted emotion. It's just, and you have to put it down in very precise way that very emotive way. Um, I'm not expressing that very well, but it is a, a wonderful way of of of, of um, getting things off your chest, if you like, onto paper. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I suppose I used to do that. It may have been a sort of release. Well, playing in, uh, in the profession when I started was incredibly tough, you know. I mean, we were doing nine hour days and um, I, I became really quite, uh, quite, what can I say? amazingly tense when I joined the RPO because I was learning the repertoire as I went along and I was under enormous pressure and at at that stage I I actually learned to meditate I took up transcendental meditation I don't know if you know about that it was very popular when I was in my 20s and 30s and that was an amazing help it's a fantastic help but I think also something like writing poetry is also a great release I think one can relate to them it's um it's kind of empowering and comforting to read women's writing. Is that what inspires you now and keeps you creative? I think so, in a way, yes, yes. And, and I, I, I would like very much to be um, more outspoken about women and their position in the world, to experience, even now, in this modern day. But it's very hard to be outspoken when you are still in, the, in professions. It doesn't go down terribly well. Uh, When I was in the Royal Film, I just want to say this to everybody who who might be listening to this. My time in the Royal Film was immensely happy. People say to me, oh, you know, was it a difficult time being the only woman? Actually, no, it really wasn't. Um, They were incredibly welcoming and supportive. And especially when I was pregnant, they were supportive. I mean, the conditions were not very supportive. Uh, I had one month off before my before I gave birth to James and two months afterwards and they kept my job open for me and I had no pay. That was what it was like in those days. You were not financially supported. They didn't have anything in place for that situation. I was the first pregnant woman in the orchestra. But um, on the other hand, you know, on a personal level, there was very, very little signs of any prejudice against me. So yes, so I think once you once you have that position, it, it all settles down. It's just, I suppose it's just getting there in the first place that was a bit tricky. Well, Sue, look, it's been fascinating to talk to you. I'm really looking forward to you being more outspoken. <laughs> I, don't I, will ever, I don't think I will ever have the courage. I, I, did, I did do a lot of research on women in music and I found huge statistics showing immense sort of uh, resistance still in, in in, in the world, uh, not just in orchestras. I think women, women who, women who, uh, you know, who, who take on these kind of challenges, I think they're absolutely great. You've done it, Claire, we've all done it uh, as musicians. Um, and I think we should continue to do that. It's a very important thing. On all those wonderful words, thank you, Sue. That's a great way, great way to finish. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic to talk to you. I feel we've only scratched the surface. We might have to come back. Yeah, we, we could probably go on for a few more hours. I, I was, <laughs> yeah, I'm a chatterbox sometimes, but it's been really lovely to talk to you, Claire. Lovely to see you. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. I feel really privileged and honoured to be part of your podcast um thank you very much 
Oh, it's a privilege and an honour for us, and I'm sure everyone's going to thoroughly enjoy listening to you. Thank you, and let's talk again. Let's do that. Bye for now. Well, that was great fun. My thanks to Sue for her wonderful insights. Please go and seek out her many recordings and publications. Now, if you have any comments you'd like to make, do email us at flutepodcasts at gmail.com or you can leave us a message on our Facebook page, Talking Flutes. That's it for now. Goodbye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.